That that is true, that you are the one leading us through life. You are the one leading us in church. You are the one leading us in this worship. You are the one leading us in our prayer life. You are the one leading us in our families. You are the one leading us in our work. That you lead us holistically, entirely, and that we do follow you. Wherever you may lead, we will follow. Thank you for sending us your son, whom we can follow, as he knows what it's like to be human, and by his life, we know what it's like to be in you and have eternal life through his death and resurrection and shed blood for us. Bless this time, God. Convict us and be with us and let us hear your words and your leading. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, I want to say welcome to everyone here and thank you everyone for joining us online. Um, in the coming weeks, just so you all know, once again, maybe more of a warning. I don't like that term when it comes to my sermons, but oh well. I'm going to try to make an effort, because we are very much hybrid at the moment, uh, to be a little bit more interactive, a little more, I don't want to say the word engaging, I don't know what that means, uh, but just a little bit uh, intentionally, a bit more uh, giving opportunities for all of us to contribute in some way. That won't always be the polls, by which, by the way, remember this thing, if you haven't logged on yet, uh, last chance to do that. Um, I'm trying to think of some ways, but uh, just to be kind of prepared for that and to try to make sure that in some way, shape, or form, our entire church family, whether here or there or everywhere, um, I want to jump into a Dr. Seuss rhyme, whether on a plane or whether in Spain or whether on a moose or whether in a caboose, I don't know. Wherever it is, uh, we can contribute and be together and, um, and interact with each other. So that's my goal for the next coming weeks, and uh, we'll see how that goes. Feel free to tell me if it goes poorly. I can handle it. But also feel free to say, hey, that went all right. You should do that again. Uh, I'm open. Anyway, uh, if you need help with this, uh, raise your hand. Someone can hopefully try to help you. But uh, we're going to press on. The question that I want to ask this morning as an opening foray, and yes, no context, no definitions, and I just want to see what you think of this. What word... Uh, what would be another word you'd use for the word anointed? And yes, I'm not going to explain it, just as far as you understand now, what word is another word that you would use for this word anointed? I'm going to give you about a minute, minute and a half. Uh, make sure that uh, everyone joining in online has a chance to log on and participate. And uh, once we get somewhat semi-close to the number of people logged on, we'll move on. And I'm not going to help you the definition, but think of the terms in which it's used in the Bible. Um, God's anointed, that uh, you are anointed. First John talks about that uh, quite a bit. Talk about what an anointing is. We talked about that when it comes to the Israeli uh, kings and prophets and such. What other word would you use for anointed? I'll give you just a couple more uh, seconds, about 30 more seconds for you to think and, and contribute, and then we'll go from there. Alrighty. A way the word cloud works, just in, in fresh in your memory, is the biggest words are the ones that came up more often. The smaller words are ones that was only uh, once or uh, twice. So it looks like, obviously, the majority is chosen. That's an excellent term. Uh, 1,000 preacher points to everyone who picked that. Uh, no. <laughs> Blessed, appointed, selected by God, uh, endowed with authority. Authority? Authority, obviously, special purpose, ordained, special, crown, respect, 
called, sacred, enveloped, raised up. Um, I always appreciate the people who get around the word by the hyphens. You hold a special place in my heart. So, chosen seems to be the word, and that's a very good word. One other question. In a word, are no more than three hyphenated words, Ryan? <laughs> I know who does this. <laughs> what are Christians anointed, based maybe on that, to do? Whoops, I turned this thing off. All right, poll is open. Once again, we'll give it another uh, minute and a half or so. We'll try to get as many responses as we can from the people across the pixels and pews. Give it a few minutes. What are Christians anointed to do? In a word or a very short hyphenated word. And I don't just ask these in order to have an interesting way to uh, start the sermon, but I ask these very much uh, to inform us about how some of us may view the text we're in and uh, as possibly a challenge to rope around into when we come to the application part of the sermon. So, so far, it's working out pretty well. What are Christians anointed to do? Let's see what we came up with. I imagine there's quite a few responses. You guys are awesome. Love, serve, share. Spread the word, spread the gospel. Thank you for no more than three. Be like Christ, live like Christ. You took that as a challenge, somebody, didn't you? <laughs> Love, share, and serve are the three top ones. Teach is in there. Stand, show Jesus, baptize, share good news, restore. That's actually a pretty good word. Repair, shine, news, purify, pray, redeem, study, live holy, honor God. Good responses, very much overall. Uh, love, share, and serve. Keep these in mind. So, if anointed does mean chosen, which is indeed a pretty good uh, translation, if you want to call it that, and we are chosen to love, share, and serve, keep that in mind as we come into the sermon, because that actually ties rather nicely in. I will remind you that there is another question later on in the sermon, so kind of keep try to keep your, uh, your phones and computers out if you can. When it comes to Matthew 3, we do see a picture of what it means to be the anointed one. Now, we actually see this in two different ways. We see someone who's anointed for a specific purpose, for the purpose of clearing and doing something for the ultimate anointed one, the Messiah, which is indeed what Messiah means, the anointed one, the chosen one. And the way that we can approach this text is three points that build on each other as you go through the story. This morning, I want to talk about from Matthew 3 that repentance is action, action is faith, and faith gives an anointing. Repentance is action, action is faith, and faith gives an anointing. So, turning to the text... We are hopefully fairly familiar with this text. It's right after uh, the birth narrative, and it, we go from Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, to Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, and we've skipped roughly 30 years. John the Baptist is in his ministry. We learn from Luke. They were born roughly about the same time, him and Jesus, and we see Jesus appear as an adult on the scene. We skip 30 years into the future, and we see what Matthew wants to tell us. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version here upon the screen. If your version is different, just the one I happen to use. Matthew 3, 1 through 6. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. I just want to go through this chapter and talk about and highlight a couple of exegetical points. Exegetical simply means to bring out the meaning, which matter to our understanding of how this passage talks about repentance is faith, or repentance is action, action leads to faith, and faith gives an anointing. First and foremost, we see what John came to preach. He came to preach repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, why this matters is because too often, somewhat way often, I've heard repentance preached as the definition, which is to turn away from, but that's incomplete. To repent does mean to turn away from something that is bad. But how it's been interpreted, and I know this from actually talking with people who struggle with what it means to repent, it doesn't just mean to do that in your heart or as a feeling. It doesn't just mean to do that to turn away from something bad or to stop doing something. Indeed, repentance is first and foremost an action. Something that not just we choose to do as an internal monologue or something that we choose to do in our heart, but it's actually something we choose to purposely do. Therefore, repentance is not just turning away from something, but turning towards something. If you turn away from something, but don't turn towards something which is good, you have not truly repented. That's an important detail. You can feel bad about something and say, God, I'm sorry, but if you've not turned away from something towards something godly, you have not repented. Likewise, you can actually stop doing something. You can technically not sin, but yet have not moved closer to God. Have you ever considered that before? Repentance is an action, moving away from something and going toward something else. Not just in thought, not just in deed, not just in feeling, but something that we do. Repentance inherently results in something visible, in something that you can actually see in people, something you can actually talk about, something which is important because the kingdom of heaven, John says, has come near. The important thing about this is that what John is saying, he's not coming and saying repent to be in the kingdom. He's not saying repent in spite of the kingdom. He's not saying repent. He's saying repent because the kingdom has come near. Repent and turn away from something and turn towards the kingdom because it has come near. There's a big difference in doing something because something has happened or in order to be in it or in order to do it or in order to you know, somehow be a part of it. Now, this picture is interesting because it portrays a caravan coming along a road. And John is preaching repentance to turn away from something to something else and quote specifically this uh, I forgot I put the slide in there. <laughs> I do that once a week at least. You should be used to it by now. Repentance, as it says actually in the commentary that Matthew, uh, that uh, we're having now, is that uh, he says on page 23, genuine repentance produces a changed life. Now that's, I say and quote this to say not just that you know, 
But I would actually challenge us by saying that true repentance produces visible fruit of which someone close to you at least can see. That doesn't mean everyone can see it. It doesn't mean that I can see it if I don't see your life. But someone close to you, someone who knows if you have repented, if repentance has made a difference in your life, someone ought to be able to say, hey, something about you has changed. Let me give you a visceral example, one that I don't like sharing. My father had anger issues. Guess who inherited them? My sisters, and they were jerks. No, I did. I wish I could say that, but I can't. I inherited those anger issues, something the military didn't help with. They gave me a little bit of discipline. And it wasn't until quite a few years into my marriage, under stress, doing stuff, which I finally decided, hey, I need to get a handle on this. Not because, admittedly, it was less about the fact of me and me realizing that I did not want to be like my father because I remember what that was like growing up. The thing is, I knew, I'm not saying this to be, hey, look at me. I'm saying this as a personal example. One, it stank because I actually had to admit the problem. That's the least fun part of anything. Two, I had to admit that I wasn't very good at it. Three, I had to get external help. And four, the day when Amy finally looked at me and said, I can tell you've been working on it. I got 10 times lighter because it actually showed the difference of genuine repentance. As Mount says, it produces a changed life. A lot of prayer went into that, by the way, from many people. The thing is, why repent, John says? Why the kingdom has come near? Why preach this message? Well, because, as he quotes Isaiah, the one who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, talking about John, says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his path for him. You've probably heard this before, that literally this is referring to the practice of when a king would come through and come uh, view his country or go through his country, people would go in front of the king and the caravan and make roads, repair roads, so that way, when the king came through, he would have a smooth ride. Has anyone ever driven on, like, fresh poured asphalt, nary a crack, nary a pothole, getting maybe rarer and rarer in these days. Circle of drive just happened. Thank you, Corvallis. Anyone get on it right after it was done? Oh, it was so nice. <laughs> Has anyone in here ever actually experienced a freshly paved road when it comes to a relationship or an experience? What that's, What is that like? Maybe it's a road between two people that has been just repaired. Maybe it's a new road between somebody. Remember what that's like? The freedom and the excitement and, and the joy of both experiences. What John is saying here is not just something that is an illusion, but he's saying is a word picture for hearts of those who heard his message so that whenever King Jesus would come, his message would flow straight and steadily and easily and smoothly into the hearts of those who heard. That was John's anointing, dare I say. His whole entire purpose was to preach repentance. Repentance from what? Well, from sin, not just from sin, but also from any power structure, as we'll see in just a minute, any power structure, any authority that was other than God who would get in the way of the message of Jesus Christ. That was not a small thing. 
but it was an important thing. In confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, to a Jew, baptism, immersion, as it's transliterated, was not an unknown thing. But to a practicing uh, true Jew, may I say, a born Jew, uh, a natural Jew, it was not something you would do. Baptism was generally reserved for Gentile proselytes who would come into the faith and would, by immersing themselves, strip off their old self and rise Jewish. The concept of planting, immersing yourself, raising up into new life was familiar, though not in practice. And so for this to happen for, I don't even know what to call it, normal Jews, practicing Jews, uh, the majority of Jews, to be baptized for forgiveness and confession of sin was actually something new. And it required a particular sort of message and required them to realize that no longer was their practices of confessing sin communally on the Day of Atonement God's will. Now it transitioned to them being accountable for their own sins and coming to God and raising in new life in repentance. This was a new baptism of one that was built on very, very uh, well in their culture. So John came and preached a message which was needed and did something which mattered. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit hmm, in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now let's consider that for a second. The Jews were constantly guilty of thinking that they were worthy and deserving of God's blessings simply because of their heritage. We can relate to that, maybe, not so much nowadays, but has anyone ever been in this situation or known someone to where they thought, because of my father, because of my relations, or because of my mother, because of my grandfather, I ought to have this? If you've ever experienced that or ever seen that, think of that a little bit bigger, like on a countrified scale, a nation scale, and that's what a lot of Jews, particularly the religious elite, oftentimes would place their faith in. They thought that they would practice the law, and because they were Abraham's children, God would bless them. Well, John teaches a quite different message. He talks about judgment, reminiscent of he who would come after him. The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. First reference of fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who comes after me, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Sandals were a cultural illusion that even the disciples of a rabbi, even carrying someone's sandals too lowly for a true disciple, that is reserved for the lowliest servant of them all. John is saying, I'm even lower than the lowliest servant of he who comes after me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Second reference to fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Third reference to fire. Now this is subject of a lot of commentary room. What does this mean? I think we make it a lot too complicated because we get wrapped up in this word baptize. We have to remember that this word baptize is simply in the transliteration for the word that means immersion. Baptizo, or baptizo, simply means to immerse. And when, there's actually historical reasons why they chose to transliterate it instead of translate it. But literally what John is saying here is that he immerses you in water for the confession of sins. But he who comes after me will immerse you, cover you in, the Holy Spirit. 
but also will cover you in fire, which is a metaphor all throughout Scripture for judgment. John is simply talking about the fate of which Jesus will eventually talk about. How either you believe in me, you accept me as the way, the truth, and the life, and you are filled and immersed in my blood and my spirit, or you are immersed to the full force of God's judgment upon sin, upon which you are colluding with still. It's not as hard as we make it out to be. John is saying that I baptize you, immerse you with water. He who comes after me, Jesus, will immerse you with his spirit, as well as immerse you in judgment. And his winnowing fork in his hand, he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, burning up the chaff. It's another illustration of how he will separate those, like the sheep and the goats. He will separate those and burn away in judgment those who don't follow him. This is pretty, pretty blunt to the Pharisees. John was. But then, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I don't need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so. Let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. We get hung up on this one a little bit, too. What does it mean that Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness and be baptized by John? Well, he had no repentance to make. He had no sin to confess. He had nothing to turn away from. He knew God, and he was sinless. Righteousness, at its core meaning, is to make a relationship straight based on a standard, some sort of known measure. Now, the measure all throughout Scripture is actually the character of God himself. But when it comes to Jesus being baptized, I think the best explanation for this is that he is proper to do this to fulfill all measure for all men. What does this mean? He's examining and exampling for us what is God's will. That we be baptized into his death, as Romans says, that we be baptized into new life, put under as someone dead in sin, and raised anew, as Romans 6, in newness of life. First, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. That happens in the metaphorical and literal task and example of burying someone in baptism and raising them anew. Jesus' baptism here is not like the old baptisms of John, and it's not like our baptisms today. It was unique, but it set the measure, it set the standard for how all of us would then come to Jesus, and Jesus would approach all of us through baptism, through death, through new life. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. Can you imagine being here and seeing this? Out of the water, he saw, out of, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. The dove, the symbol of peace, coming down upon Jesus. The peace of God extending through Jesus to all men. And God quite viscerally and literally anointing Jesus in front of the crowd as saying, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. What does that do whenever you're in someone and someone calls someone out and says, hey, I am well pleased with you and maybe gives a look to everyone else? <laughs> what does that make us want to be like? Makes us want to be like him or makes us want to be like that person. This is God anointing Jesus viscerally and physically and in all ways to Jesus to begin his earthly ministry. That's all dandy. What does it matter to us? That's a good question. It's one worth considering. 
Well, there's a couple things, and I want to go back to this slide for a second. Remember that I talked about how repentance is action, action is faith, and faith gives an anointing. This is true in almost every character in here. Repentance is action. John came preaching repentance, which involved turning from God, confessing your sin, doing something new, more or less, as a Jew, and turning towards God. Action is faith. Those who came to John, who eventually come to Jesus, proclaimed their faith in who God was and who God's messenger was. John, more or less the last of the Old Testament prophets. And finally, faith gives an anointing. John's faith gave him the task of clearing this path for the Messiah who was anointed by God and then through whom everyone in him also gains the same anointing, believe it or not, not to forgive sins. First, though, repentance is action. Let's make this real for a second. We can read these stories and we can agree with it Except it's awful hard to sometimes turn the biblical stories and have them look at us. So I actually want to pause here for two minutes. I want you to pray. I want you to talk with those who you're around, even here in the building. And if you're alone, find someone or even just talk with God. And I want you to consider truly what we talked about as far as repentance goes. Not just stopping something, not just feeling bad about something, but actually viscerally in action, turning towards God. And the question I want to ask you is what action do you need to take or want to take to come to or move closer to God? What action do you need or want to take to come to or move closer to God? I'm not accusing any of you of being wretched old sinners. But I am saying that all of us most likely have something we can turn away from. And most likely many, many of us have something where we have not taken or not taken enough steps closer to God. I invite you to two minutes of prayer, reflection, discussion to consider this point. Two minutes. I don't know what all came to mind, but it can be as large and serious as maybe having a counseling appointment, installing accountability software on a phone or a computer, or maybe as simple as creating a better prayer discipline or a Bible reading discipline. Whatever steps we need to move closer to God, I want you to walk away with that with an actual action in mind. Number two, action is faith. We do this not because I say anything. It's maybe you did because I said it, but we do this because we have faith in the God we want to move closer to and the Jesus Christ who moved closer to us in order that we come to God. And so I want to ask you, I'm not going to dwell on this for a minute, but I want to challenge you. Are you willing to take actions you haven't before because of your faith? And I don't know what this means to you. Maybe it's actually developing that discipline. Maybe it's actually doing what we talked about in the last point. Maybe it's actually stepping out in bravery and risk, like we talked about in the morning class with the three Jewish guys and Daniel. I'm not going to say that. Um, Azariah, Hananiah, and, oh my goodness, the other guy. I made a big point about how I'm not going to call them by their, their Babylonian names anymore, and now I forgot. Forgive me, Lord. It's Thon. Oh, well. 
What actions are you willing to take that you haven't before because of your recommitment in this moment to faith? Maybe it's doing something closer to God. Maybe it's finally talking to someone about their faith or having that awkward conversation for the benefit of your spiritual life and theirs. Whatever it is, action is faith. And true faith, as James talks about, produces action. You get caught up in the laboratology of good works, but it simply means action. Number three, faith gives an anointing. None of us in here can forgive sin, but each and every one of us in here, each and every one of us out there, can do a part in straightening the path to someone else for them to meet and see God. Every one of us can clear the paths and make straight for the way of the Lord in our life to someone somewhere. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's the barista at Starbucks or Dutch Bros that you see every Monday morning that you just want to try to do something, to put in a good word for God. I want to challenge you today. We all have the anointing, the mission to be a road to Jesus. Every single one of us has the same mission as John the Baptist. The same calling, the same choosing, if you will, as John the Baptist to point others to Christ. What I want to ask you today is who will you at least pray for, if not talk to, to walk the road to Christ this week? I want you right now to think of a name. If you don't know their name, Think of their face. Think of where they work. Think of who and where you see them. Think of a name. And then, what is that person's name? Or at least their initials, if you don't want to be blunt with it. Who is that person? If you don't know their first name, if you don't know their initials, where they work. Put something you know about them. Think of someone who is your someone who is your one who is the person that I will be praying for and that you will be praying for this week that you may clear the path between their heart and God that God may use you to introduce them or at least be a bridge for Jesus Christ this week as is your calling, your anointing. Consider that God has maybe chosen you and no one else to be that bridge. What's their name? We'll give it a few more seconds. Church, brothers and sisters, family, this is our mission this week. This is our calling this week. This is our anointing this week. I'll send out a text Wednesday on the group text. If you haven't gotten in on that, let me know. I'll add you to it. I'll send out a text on Wednesday. You don't have to respond, but I'll ask, how's your one going? This is our mission this week. Heavenly Father, I lift up to you all the names on this word or descriptions of who they are. We know maybe nothing about these people. We may know them very well. But God, one thing we do know, that there are people who know you 
which desire for all of these people to know you as well. We desire for these people to be introduced to you, to know you, to want to seek you, to want to experience their forgiveness and repentance and eternal life that we know and the joy there is. God, I pray that you empower your church, you strengthen us to overcome our fear and trepidation. At very least, you give us the discipline to pray every day for the people on this board. As we pray for each other, that we may indeed be that bridge, be that road to build it with you, to spread your kingdom, to grow your people, and to shine your light into this world. We lift up our thoughts, I lift up this congregation, and I lift up these names to you this week and beyond. In your power, in your grace, and in your Son's name. Amen. Church, we know our mission. We know our anointing. 